Welcome to Listen In. My name is Stephanie Gates Sloan, and I want to invite you to listen in on conversations I have with my friends as we discuss engaging college students with the gospel. Brady, I'm just so thankful that you would take some time to sit down and have a conversation with me. And I'm excited about what we're going to be talking about because I think it's really important for not only Christians to start to understand, but really for those of us in ministry to begin to wrap our minds around how has culture shifted and what does that mean for us? But before we jump into that conversation, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, Hey, everybody. Uh, My name is Brady, and I did my undergrad at Texas A&M. Uh, I was really involved with the BSM there when I was a student, and, and I owe a lot of uh, what I'm doing in ministry now to the time there. Uh, after I was at A&M as a student, I worked for one year as a campus missionary at San Houston State, and then uh, I moved to Dallas, where I started working for the UT Dallas BSM, and I was there for five years on staff there. Um, for the first three years that I was there, I was, I was just part-time because I was a full-time student at Dallas Theological Seminary. And I finished there and got a dual MA in Christian Ed and Biblical Studies. And I really enjoyed my, my time there and thankful for the ministry that they have at DCS. And then this last summer, your ministry location just shifted. Yeah, yeah. Another big, another big shift yeah. happened. Yeah, so wound up coming over and joining the staff at UNC and uh, only been around for a little little less than a year now which man it feels crazy it's been that long it's been a strange as everyone knows it's been a strange uh spring 2020 that's for sure it's just been a strange year period for our ministry Mm -hmm. but that's a whole different conversation for another day um but we're thankful to have you you have definitely been just a blessing to our ministry and the gifts that you have and i'm thankful to have you on our staff and like i said in the beginning i'm interested in us having this conversation, uh, partially because it's something that I think it's really important to both of us, but I really think it could be helpful to other people that we uh, get to do ministry alongside. And so the theme question for today is going to center around this one question, which is why is it important for Christians to understand culture when we share the gospel? So When I say that broad question, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Yeah, there's there's so much, right, that we could say about this. But what what I I tend to think of is that this is modeled pretty clearly for us, actually, in Scripture. I I think about Paul's ministry and how he would, you know, he would speak culturally appropriate things uh, to the Epicureans and Stoics, like you see that in Acts 17, and then he'll communicate different things and, and focus in on different things that are relevant to the culture, uh, say in Acts 28, when he's talking with the Jewish leaders. And, and those are just a couple of examples. Uh, I also think about uh, contextualization, you know, which is a kind of a fancy word in missions that people use. And uh, you know, gospel contextualization, the question that you said, why is it important for us to understand culture when we share the gospel? Well, Gospel contextualization is, is answering people's questions in a, in a way that they can best hear. And we won't fully understand people's questions unless we understand you know, cultural assumptions that they bring to the table in the first place. Uh, you know, nobody, 
you know, us included is, is bringing a blank slate as we approach spiritual conversations. And what I mean by that is that we can't help but be informed and in some way shaped by the culture around us regarding, you know, baseline assumptions that we have about spirituality, about, uh, you know, progress, authority, different values, all those sorts of things. So we, so we have to understand uh, the culture if we, if we want to effectively communicate uh, to, to people uh, when, we're trying, when we're sharing the gospel. I really appreciated the statement that you made. It says, for us to answer people's questions, we have to do it in a way that people can best hear. And a lot of times it's really difficult for us to step outside of our context and to recognize that someone may be hearing this conversation in a very different way than I do. I grew up in the local church. I understand church words. I understand uh, the words gospel, sin, those type of things. But Brady, would you say that that's normal for a college student of today to have that same background that maybe you and I have? It's certainly less and less common for people to to come in with, yeah, some of these biblical foundations and and things that that we, like you said, that we grew up with, and I'm I'm in the same boat. And so we do have to be really careful uh, to not assume that. And, you know, one of the problems that, that, that I see because sometimes people will say, no, 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 forget the idea of contextualization. The important thing is that we just quote, you know, quote unquote, share, just share the straight up gospel. Don't be concerned. Just, just share the gospel. That's all you need to do. And it is when you do that, you wind up giving people answers to questions that they aren't even asking. And for folks, so for example, the apologetic method and, and framework for something like the four spiritual four spiritual laws, right? That that assumes a, a basic understanding of sin, of who God is, of guilt, things like that. Well, when that basic understanding is gone, which is kind of what you and I are, are hitting at here, uh, we have to adapt the way we communicate. In like I said, we like we said, in ways people will understand and be able to respond well. And 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 I think it's important to say you can kind of get ahead of an objection to this is that we're not saying that we change the gospel, right? We're not we're not watering it down, and we're certainly not uh, ashamed of it. What we're talking about here is is communicating the gospel in a way that will make sense to people and will hit home at the particular questions that they're asking in their particular context. Exactly, and I think not only are we having to deal with context, we're even having to deal with personal experience. What I have run into um, just during my time at UNT is often there are students who have been hurt by someone in the local church or maybe even something happened in a church in their past. And so they're coming from it with this certain mindset that Christians have this one way to view things or just because this one Christian or this one church did this to me or my family I'm now lumping in everybody else. And so what I have found is it's really important to be patient and to get to know someone often before I can even jump into trying to have some of those bigger conversations that we all hope we're going to get to have. And it just kind of depends. We've had conversations where we can jump straight to the gospel right away. And then there's those conversations. Like I know you've been meeting with a guy that you met on campus and you spent this whole first fall semester and spring semester really trying to invest in him. And so we kind of live in that weird tension of where we can jump into the gospel with this one student, but then with this student over here, it might take two or three times of hanging out or maybe even longer before they feel safe enough with us 
to where we can start to engage with spiritual things. Has that been a similar experience that you've had? I know that that's been normal for me. Yeah, definitely. It, there's not a, there's not a one size fits all thing to every, everything obviously, but yeah. Um, and I find the beauty of this is that we're, when we're living out the gospel in front of people and we're putting their needs in front of our own, we're serving them, thinking carefully about, you know, what is it that they need from a, in a, from a practical standpoint that I can provide? Uh, so like for my friend that you're talking about, he's, he's a PhD student living in, living in Denton. He doesn't have a car. Well, the, you know, he's got to go get groceries. And so all I do is, you know, take him to the Mexican supermarket and he just, just I, don't, I don't even buy him food. I just give him transportation. And for him, that's just a tangible need. And what I've found is just in loving and serving him, you know, he is curious as to why I'm doing that. He, he, he knows, you know, you know, for, for me, it's a little, for us, it's a little bit different because we're in vocational ministry. These people, these people know and understand that. But I think for anybody who's seeking to, to love and care for people around them that don't know the Lord, um, yeah, it just takes that intentional time investment for sure. What we... I think have experienced is this idea of um, investment and engaging and being really present with someone for a long time can often feel overwhelming for a lot of people. It could feel like, I don't know if I should hang out with someone who believes differently than I do. Like for us to put that kind of investment into someone, we're building a friendship and that can be uncomfortable for someone who's in the church to think of, we're saying, hey, go hang out with people who are not like you, that don't believe like you, might be living a lifestyle very different than you. And yet, that's what the Bible shows us. I mean, we saw Jesus doing that. Uh, we saw, I mean, he went out of his way to go and engage with the woman at the well in John 4. And that's often the, the world I live in with uh, working with UNC athletes is, we have very different worldviews, very different beliefs, very different, honest, honestly, a lot of time lifestyles. But yet, just by being there and showing up in a, in a consistent way, I've been able to have those kind of conversations. And nine times out of ten, they bring it up to me, which uh, just continually amazes me. Um, and so I think it's being okay to step outside of the world that we know and being willing to say, okay, this isn't going to change who I am. It's just the opportunity for me to take the gospel someplace where hopefully the Lord is going to be moving and working, and we get to be a part of that. And I think even when we have those conversations, um, it can feel like when we do get to share the gospel that our evangelistic efforts seem to fall on deaf, deaf ears in our society today. What do you think about that? Yeah, the, 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 there's there's a lot been a lot of work done on what is it that has shifted culture in such a way that, yeah, it, it seems as though our evangelism is, is falling on deaf ears more and more and more often. And, you know, again, if we were going to caveat this a little bit, we would say seem is a pretty important word there because we, we understand that as we go and share the gospel, God is working. I mean, his, his spirit is moving people's hearts, even if it doesn't appear that way to us. I mean, I think anybody who's, done this kind of intentional investment that you're talking about has probably had times where they've shared the gospel uh, with somebody they've had multiple conversations uh since then and then it gets brought up you know maybe months maybe even years later and we didn't even we didn't even really know that there was that much soul searching going on so uh we, we would want to highlight that it's seemingly falling on deaf ears but as i've wrestled with that question a little bit why is it the case that that christianity is 
becoming harder and harder for people to believe and and, and even for people who claim claim to be Christians it's, it's harder for them not to just live with with a lot a lot of doubts um, you know K- Tim Keller put out uh, a, a list of the three biggest challenges that the church is facing in, in our current moment and I think they all relate to this uh, the, the first one we've already talked about a little bit is that you know how do we do evangelism in this post-Christian society that we live in. Um, how do we do evangelism, evangelism with people who lack uh, any sense of sin or transcendence, uh, who lack these basic traditional religious infrastructure kind of beliefs? Uh, the a second issue that this is huge for us, and this is very related to, to evangelism, is how do we form disciples in a digital culture? Uh, the way that's related to evangelism is that as we, we understand it's not just our individual duty to go out and do evangelism, but we're called to train and disciple people that will also be laborers for the harvest. And so traditional models uh, of biblical and spiritual formation through just a couple hours of public worship and a community group, we're finding that those are becoming insufficient for for countering uh, the impact that 24-7 digital technology has on students. They're they're inundated. They're being our students are being discipled by the social media feeds by video games, but I mean, all these different things. Now, the idea of distraction is not new, right? That, that's not a new idea, but the idea that it's so digital, the immediate access uh, to loads of information is kind of a newer thing. The fact that you can carry around the internet in your pocket has huge implications. So uh, our, additionally, our models of theological formation, they give us a firm grasp sometimes of biblical doctrine, like a, a student that's been very rooted in church and it is being discipled, even if they are being discipled well, they're getting some biblical doctrine, but they, they failed to understand uh, and kind of deconstruct the culture's beliefs and provide better Christian answers. And then th- the last big problem and big challenge th- that we see with, with evangelism is uh, that this is what Keller says is, is political polarization uh, in a, our fragmented culture. So, you know, these, more liberal camps make an idol out of individual freedom, and then conservative camps make an idol out of you know race, nation, blood, and soil. Both of these are are secular. The the transcendent God is missing, and, and something created and earthly is is what gives people their definition and meaning in life. And, and then the big danger for that, and I I see this almost every week when I do evangelism. It seems like the the great danger is that churches get caught up in that political polarization. And become tools of either a leftward or a rightward coalition. And if either of those things happens, it saps the church of spiritual power. And what I've seen is that it saps the church of credibility with non-Christians because they they see Christians as oh, you're just a, a faction of this political group. I'm not going to listen to you because that's not my belief. And we know as Christians that it's so much more important. I mean, what we believe about God is so much more important necessarily than our politics. We also know that what we believe about God and should and, and does inform our politics, but that's not all of who we are. And political polarization, I, I see it almost every week on the college campus as, as a huge issue. I agree. I think just spend two minutes on Facebook and you'll see that happening. Um, there were two things that you were kind of talking about that I want to tease out a little bit. You said that we're forming disciples in a digital culture. And oftentimes when I'll talk with a local pastor about what does discipleship look like within your church, and that's a really hard question for them to answer to me, 
they'll say we're making disciples through the Sunday gathering. So by coming to a Sunday service, they are viewing that as this is the discipleship that we have been called by God to do. And I think in some context, that used to be pretty sufficient. Um, Like I said, come back to how I grew up. I grew up in church. I grew up going to church Sunday morning, Sunday school service, Sunday night, Wednesday. And so I had an underlying foundation of biblical knowledge, uh, an understanding of theology and doctrine. And now what I'm seeing even more is even the students who grew up in church cannot verbally tell me the gospel. They can't even think about, like, not only can I not say what it is, but when we ask them to tell someone else, it's like they shut down and there's so much fear of, but I can't. And I think that's getting into, once again, understanding the cultural context that that just happens with where we are with postmodernism right now, where they would say that uh, basically your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth, and as long as we both know what we believe, then that's fine. We'll leave the other person alone. But when I have these conversations with our local churches, I've found that it's overwhelming for a pastor or even someone who's just uh, maybe a lay leader in the church to think through, okay, we can't do it the way we've done it before. Um, Not only does culture look different, the amount of time that people have looks different, and the church structure sometimes will change and sometimes it hasn't. Um, And so this idea of creating disciples within a digital culture, what do you think, like if you had a chance to sit down with a local pastor and they asked you that question, so how do we make disciples of college students outside of just the Sunday gathering? What is it that you would really hope that they would hear you say? Oh man, another another huge, huge question. I can start by saying what, what I wouldn't want to say. I, I don't ever want to approach a pastor or a local lay leader with, hey, let me let me show you all the things that you're doing wrong and give you a new list of things to do. Exactly. I don't I don't I don't know that that's what what they need to hear. Is it true that in light of cultural changes that we should always be evaluating our ministry models and and finding a way to measure their effectiveness? Yeah, I mean, we want to try to do that as best we can, but I, I wouldn't want to communicate, hey, everything you're doing is wrong. Let me give you this laundry list of new things to, to do. Uh, what I would want to challenge us all to do is be, yeah, be thinking carefully about what what is working, what isn't. Um, there, there's a book that came out by a guy named Alan Noble called uh, Disruptive Witness, Speaking the Truth in an Age of Distraction. I think that would be a good place for people to start. Uh, Noble is trying to say, how do we do discipleship and how do we um, how do we do evangelism in, in a culture that is so distracted by all these different things um, particularly yeah constant media distraction um, he yeah he does a really good job of spelling those things out and yeah that so that would be a good place I think to start just to give a bit of a framework for people um, but yeah I mean it, it, it on the one hand, it's think about new things that we can do. On the other hand, I think it's look back and, and see, uh, look at the early church, think about the way that uh, their communities were, were were more than than just a just a Sunday gathering or just a Sunday and Wednesday night, but they were a consistent uh, presence in each other's lives, and that would be a good place to start. That's just a first step. Yeah, I agree. Just that that life on life uh, and understanding of 
inviting someone in um, for the hope of as they spend time with me, I'm going to get to get to know them. They're going to feel more comfortable. We're going to have this opportunity to get to those spiritual conversations. And I know for me with the basketball team that I work with, I like to have them over in my home because that rarely happens for them. Anyone who's outside of that team culture, they don't get home-cooked meals very often and just inviting them in. I had one girl who was just sitting there looking through my bookshelf. She pulls out a book and she's like, tell me more about this. And, you know, even in some of those situations, by having the team in my home, I've been then able to have great conversations about the gospel, about what God's doing in my life, and even about other cultural topics like racial reconciliation and things like that. Another um, idea that or concept that you brought up was uh, doubt. And, and so why do you think that doubt is not a bad thing? Yeah, man, we, we see this with our students just so, so consistently, you know, in, in a, in a very secularized society. And when we talk about secular society, it'd be helpful to clarify what we mean. And and I've been reading a lot on, a lot on this. Um, Tim Keller's making sense of God has been pretty foundational and he, he's drawn a lot from Charles Taylor, uh, who's a Canadian philosopher who, who wrote a book called a secular age that tries to, to answer the question, how did we go from the default assumption in Western society 500 years ago was that God exists? It wasn't necessarily that everyone was Christian, but the idea of atheism or agnosticism was not a very commonly held thing. And so Taylor's trying to say, what happened in that 500-year period where now uh, secularism and being, uh, or at least being non-religious, is at least for a lot of for a lot of young people, it's the default assumption, right? So how did that happen? And this has everything to do with answering the question about um, about doubt and how do we think about doubt? And you know, uh, James Smith wrote wrote a little book that um, explains a, a little bit of this, and I think this quote that he that he talks about is really helpful. He says that even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. He says, we're all Thomas now. And, and that, that, can, that sounds really bleak. And it's like, a oh, hopeless man, we're going to live in this constant state of doubt. But I, I, would, I would challenge people to think of doubt in a little bit of a different way, not to uh, valorize doubt and not to act like it's a noble a great thing, but to re- but to recognize and understand that it's there. Uh, Tim Keller says that uh, a Christian that never doubts is like a body without any white blood cells, and that's been pretty formative for my way of thinking about this. You know, I think that if Christianity is true, when doubt comes, our wrestling with it and our asking the hard questions and thinking about it actually ought to lead us into deeper faith. Uh, into a more sturdy and steady faith that isn't rooted in the the notion that a lot of secular people have about faith, uh, which which is basically that faith is for a secular person faith is believing in something that you know not to be true, but you believe in it anyway. It's not even it's not even the old adage of like, oh yeah, you just have blind faith in that. No, they some some secular people because again the default assumption is that secularism is true. So secular people look at faith and say, not, not it's not just that your your uh, faith is something that 
you you have wishful thinking about, you actually know that it's not true, and you just believe it anyway. And, and we have such a different perspective on that as Christians. Uh, but being able to communicate that well and talk about um, when those when those questions come and, and when when doubt arises in us, we need to doubt our doubts even and, and ask ourselves the question: Why is it that I'm so worried about this? And uh, ask the question, heck, even if my doubt that I'm having right here was true, does that mean that my faith is void or empty of, of any value or, or, or real meaning? And I think a lot of times the answer would be no. I mean, a lot of times our doubts are on frivolous, crazy things. And, you know, they, they might be genuine and they might be meaningful, but in and of themselves, they're, they're not really going to shake the foundations of our faith if we'll just examine them. Uh, the, the last thing that I would say really quick, and I, I know I'm talking too much about this one, but um, doubts, man, again, I, I see it valorized by people. It's almost like being open-minded is like a new virtue. And I love what Oz Guinness says about this. He says there are two equal and, equal and opposite errors into which Christians are inclined to fall when thinking about doubt. On the one hand, those who are more theologically liberal tend to be too soft on doubt, lionizing such notions as ambiguity and uncertainty, uh, on the other hand, those who are theologically conservative tend to be too hard on doubt, demonizing the dire consequences of unresolved doubt and, and almost seeking some sort of spiritual perfectionism that leads that leaves doubters in a state of guilt or despair. And, and man, the Bible so, the Bible talks about this often, but I think about the book of Jude and how we're, we're instructed to show mercy uh, to those who doubt. And I think if we're going to be extending mercy other people who doubt we need to be extending mercy to ourselves and not uh on the one hand not taking ourselves so seriously but on the other hand just cutting ourselves a little bit of a little bit of slack on these things because we actually all have doubts even people that claim that they don't uh i think deep down in their hearts i think sometimes they do i think you're absolutely right um you know my brother passed away about a month ago and we've been walking through um just a really difficult season with him for about the last five or six years. And the amount of uh, stress that my family was walking through was not something I could hide, um, especially every day. And I realized really quickly that because I couldn't hide it, I just needed to be honest. And so while I'd be up at the BSM meeting with students or even teaching on a Thursday night, it got to the point where I just said, I have to be real with these students. And there were times when my brother would be in the hospital and we wouldn't know if he was going to make it. And I would just be praying and praying and praying. And everything that we walked through, there were times I would literally say, like, God, I don't know if you're good with what I'm seeing and what's happening in my family. The Bible tells me you are. But right now, I just, I don't know. And when I started as a ministry leader, to come before students and to say, I'm wrestling with this. All of a sudden, students just started like literally coming into my office because they had never heard a ministry leader say that I'm doubting or I'm wrestling with something. And that kind of opened my eyes to those of us who are in ministry leadership. We get the opportunity to almost give permission by displaying that and saying, like, this is what it looks like. Just like you're saying, we all have things that are hard for us where doubt is going to creep in. 
And when we wrestle with that and we have people with us that are helping us wrestle with that, that's where faith takes root. And when I have a student who comes into my office who's wrestling with doubt, for me, that's just, in some ways, I get more excited because I know when we walk through those hard conversations, that's just an opportunity for the Spirit to move and work. And so I think, first off, it's recognizing that doubt exists, even with those of us who have been Christians for over 30 years, like myself, and also giving space for this current generation of college students to step in and say, okay, here's what I'm wrestling with, here's what I'm doubting, provides us a great opportunity to really engage in spiritual things with them. And I think, lastly, like what I was saying, is just being honest and allowing yourself to be vulnerable from a leadership position really does provide opportunities, I think, for those that we're getting to walk alongside within our ministries to see from us uh, the goodness of God and how he enters in into those moments of pain and doubt uh, and reveals himself, whether that be through scripture, prayer, the Bible, um, and even the community that walks with us. So I think that you didn't talk too much. I think it was a helpful conversation uh, for us to, like I said, we we stuck our toe in. We didn't dive into that one as much as we definitely could have. Another question that I kind of want to circle back to, because we kind of hit it in the beginning, is why is belief in modern Christianity hard for so many people? What do you think about that? Yeah, so I, I think that secularization, we, we, we've talked about this a little bit already. Uh, secularization is good. Uh, thinking about that goes a long way towards understanding why it's so challenging. Um, that there are these assumptions that are made in our culture uh, about about w- like what is the truth, and we talked about you know we, we, there's been so, so much made about postmodernism and you know this belief that you know what's what's true is true for you, and you can have your truth, I can have my truth, and uh, it it seems like that is going away to me, honestly. I, I I'll run into a lot of students that will say they believe that, but on a little bit of examination and, and asking them, you know the easiest thing to do, we've, we've talked about political polarization, right? The easiest thing to do to show, to show a student that they're not a moral relativist is to ask them if they believe that the current presidential administration is doing good things. Because a lot of college students are not going to be very on board, right? So they're going to claim moral outrage or moral anger about something, but you can't be morally outraged and morally relative at the same time, right? So, uh, but, but, but yes, going back to what, what, you, what you said about, you know, why is it harder? Well, secularization, like I said, has a lot to do with this. Um, there, there's these, there are these narratives that, that are that are put out there, and, and they're they're said as um, these kind of self-evident things that that appear like they need no justification. You know, people say things like, "Keep your religious views private. Uh, I'm free to do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anybody. Uh, you have to be yourself and not care what anyone else says." And these, these, uh, these ideas are rooted in these different narratives. And, and one of the huge ones that, that makes it so hard for students is that they're bombarded day in, day out with these messages that are so foundational to culture that they almost go without people even really thinking carefully about them. And if we would think carefully about them, we would see, we would see how uh, empty they are, right? And how they don't really 
make sense, how they don't really help us uh, live, you know, in, in our society. So this identity one, right? The idea that yeah, the identity narrative that secularism posits is that you just need to do whatever you want. You need to find what's true for you. You need to look inside yourself to figure out who you really are. Well, that that sounds good. And actually, you, you, you see this, this is comes straight out from like Frozen, right? Like, let it go. Elsa is going to not have any more right or wrong, no rules for her, right? She's going to let go of what everyone else expects her to be and become who she really is by what? By looking inside of her. Well, that sounds like it needs like, oh yeah, be yourself, be true to yourself, right? This is what Disney has taught us all from a young age. I don't mean to like rag on Disney too much, but there's a number of problems with that. One of which is that it, it assumes that we know what we want and that our inner desires are actually coherent and harmonious. When the, the reality is that, you know, our desires contradict one another and push back on each other often. Uh, take, for example, the, the desire that many people have to have a, a, a very stellar career, right? They want to achieve the highest levels of their, their, their given profession, while at the same time wanting to have a deep and meaningful family life. Well, almost everyone who's tried to have both, you know, try to have both of their things, is it possible to have both? It is possible, but it's not going to come free and easy, right? It, you're going to, there's going to be give and take on those things. And we all understand that it's, it's not sufficient to say, just do whatever you want and be who you want to be, because that's going to lead you to be a very, actually, at the end of the day, a very self-centered person, which none of us actually wants. And I could, I could go on with some of this if you want me to, but the identity narrative is, is pretty foundational. And it's definitely a conversation we have all the time on a college campus. And obviously, that's the world in the context that we live within it. UNT, there's you know almost 40,000 college students. And within Denton County, we have over 60,000 college students. And we work with over 90 local churches. And what continues to amaze me, even with all of those churches, you know, the Bible tells us that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I think oftentimes we get to experience that in a different perspective. I know when I first got to UNT, there was just two of us on staff. And I got here, and all of a sudden, there's like 30-something college students, and I felt the weight of how do I engage 30,000 uh, students? And then being able to realize, like, okay, it's not like that. Uh, but I really began to understand this idea of, but the laborers are few, and we see that on our campus. Um, and so with that idea in mind, and, you know, Scripture tells us the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What what would you say to our local churches? Um, and in a way, it kind of ties into the question that I always ask at the end, is why should the local church care about college ministry? And so with those two things, that idea of the laborers are few, and then tie that in with that question that I ask everybody, why should they care? What would you say? What would you say if you sat down with your pastor and he literally said, Brady, why should we care about college students? Yeah, college students are some of the most trainable, sendable, um, ripe for a lot of growth. That they're they're living. A lot of them are living in some of the most social uh, times that they'll ever have in their life, excluding spring twenty twenty with coronavirus and isolation. Excluding that, they're living in a time where, where they're going to be around people, perhaps more than they ever will be again. I mean, granted, it does depend a little bit on their jobs, but 
they're they're touching uh, so many different areas. There, you have people that are that are really going to be the future leaders and shakers and movers in our society. And you know, we we just spent 15 minutes talking about how uh, secularization has led to the 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 harvest being challenging. But we never ever said that the harvest is not plentiful, right? The harvest is still plentiful. People still do want and need to hear the gospel. But because the workers are few, it's our job as leaders, both in church-based collegiate ministry context and campus-based context, to, to raise up laborers. And we do this first, of course, by, by praying and asking to send laborers. And then when people do come in, when, when college students especially do come into your church, if if you uh, build relationships with them and you, you start having, heck, you could have three college students at your church right now, and God can use those three if we'll invest in them, if we'll challenge them to be multiplication-minded, uh, challenge them that they are. When we pray, Lord, send laborers into the harvest field, and then three new college students show up in our ministries, they are the answers to that prayer because they are the laborers that we ask for. And so we can celebrate that. We can tell, I tell our students that, our freshmen this year, I've said, you guys are answers to prayer. Do you know that? Like, do you understand that you are the laborers that we ask for? And so we, we, then, then when, we, when we get them, we need to be faithful to, to train them, to build them up, to, to teach them. I love the, the term, I think it's Jeff Vanderstelt says, he has his gospel fluency, how the gospel isn't just the ABC. It's, it's not just how you're saved, right? It's how you are continually grown, how you're sanctified. Uh, all the power of the spirit. So we, we want to challenge students to see themselves as laborers. The the great commission is their commission uh, to, to be workers in the harvest. And so that's just a little bit of where I would start with that. You're right. Those college students get to go to places that you and I can't, we can't get to the students that are in their classes or even in the dorms. Um, and the way the church gets to partner in that is by having people who are willing to invest in college students. And even we've had some church members who then come and say, not only do we want to invest, but we want to step into evangelism. Can you prepare us to know how do we have evangelistic conversations with not just college students, but with anybody? And I think that's just a really unique opportunity that we get as BSM staff is to not only be discipling students and sharing the gospel with them, getting to walk, walk with them as they're discovering faith maybe for the first time, but then on the flip side, we get to partner with local churches and help them think through and strategize what does this look like within our context at our church. And I think living in those two worlds just provides such amazing opportunities to really respond to the reality that the laborers are few. And so, Brady, I appreciate you just giving me a, a little bit of your time today. And I hope that anyone who listens to our conversation would just be reminded um, that though culture may be different, the spirit is still moving and working. And we get to step into those spaces. And while things may feel hard, um, and they are hard, I've had hard conversations, God is still moving and working. And I get to watch that move, that movement happen. And so my hope would be that anyone that would listen would say, I want to become a student of the gospel, and that also means that I become a student of those around me so that I know not only how to engage them, to do that I need to know where they are, but also have a better understanding of their context and their worldview so that I can uh, enter in and address the questions that they may have rather than what it is I think they need to hear or know. 
So thank you for your time. Serving alongside you has been a blessing. You have stepped into a season in our ministry that has been so weird that um, I don't know how we would have made it without you. And so I'm thankful that through the Lord's sovereignty, he placed you at UNT when he did, um, not only just as a partner in ministry, but as my friend. And the way you have supported me through everything that I've had to walk through um, has just been a great blessing. And so I'm thankful to have you at UNT. um, And I look forward to getting to continue to see how God moves and works through your leadership within our ministry. So thank you so much. And I hope that... I hope that you um, have a good rest of your stuck in the house day, and hopefully soon we'll be back out on campus being able to do ministry the way we're used to it. But indeed, indeed exactly. But I think right now the Lord is teaching us uh, just some new ways to think through ministry and what this looks like. And so once again, friend, thank you for giving me your time, and I hope that you have a great afternoon. If you would like to continue this conversation, you can contact me at stephaniegatessloan.com. The music was created by my talented friend, Vince Romanelli. Thanks for listening.